Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Sonia Green, or Sonic as she's better known, joined Saracens Rugby Club two years after she first started playing rugby at the tender age of 19 and she has completed her 17th season at the club. During her time with Sari, she studied sports science at Loughborough and continued to play for Saracens so she could pursue her England career. She has played alongside some incredible players from all over the world, has worked with the greatest coaches who've supported her in fulfilling her dream of playing for England. Her best rugby memories include winning a number of premiership and cup titles with Saris, captaining England A, playing in the Hong Kong Sevens, winning the Sevens World Series with England and playing in numerous Sevens tournaments around the world for England, Samurai and Tribe. In her free time, believe it or not, she has free time, Sonia loves traveling in her camper van, surfing in exotic locations, including Ocean Beach in San Diego and Oregon Bay in Sri Lanka. In addition to that amazing rugby career, Sonic or Sonia Green will be starting, well, she's vice principal at Saracens High School in London. So Sonia, what an impressive CV. I mean, whenever I read that back, how do you feel about it? Are you proud of yourself when you think about all those amazing accomplishments? Well, firstly, thank you very much for having me today and speaking to me. But I, I suppose I haven't really thought of it like that. Am I proud? Yeah, yeah, I, I am proud, although I've still got lots more that I want to achieve. So, yes, I don't I perhaps haven't reflected on like that because there's so, still so much more that I want to do. So we're very conscious that people listening to this, they might be, they might have children who are very sporty and interested in rugby in particular, or they might have, you know, young people who are interested in going to Loughborough like you did in a very famous course doing the sports science course, you know, and they're interested in your sort of career and how that evolved. So tell us, how did you get involved in rugby? Was there someone bringing you down there, you know, on a Saturday morning or how did that happen? So for me, it, it's really about my school that I went to. From a very young age, I was taking part in a lot of sport because of my grandparents. I actually grew up with my grandparents. So for me, there wasn't necessarily somebody that could take me to lots of training sessions um, at weekends and evenings. So it really was down to sort of being inspired by my grandparents because they played a lot of sport, but really about school and the opportunity that I was given at school. And from a very young age, when I, I didn't pass my 11 plus, and I remember being gutted because my grandma had been to an all-girls school and really I wanted to go because she talked about the sport there. And I was gutted, but I knew that there was this school that was out of my borough that was really good at sport. I, I have no idea how at the age of 10, 11, I'd got my, it was like, I'm going to this school. I would, nobody from my school, primary school went, but I was just really focused and determined I was going to go to this school. And thank goodness I did because... The school I went to in culture, it was, you know, it's just a normal comprehensive, nothing fancy, but well known for its sport. And yeah, I was, I was thankfully very lucky to have some amazing PE teachers. I can still remember my first PE teacher, she went to Loughborough. So I got it in my head early that I'm going to go to Loughborough. 
And then I was a bit older doing GCSEP again. My next PE teacher, she went to Loughborough. So I was determined to go there. And then when I got into the sixth form, I was really lucky that my PE teacher, he was very open-minded and he made the girls do rugby and he made all the boys do netball. And that was it. The rest is history. So I started rugby very, very late, but it was it was all the other sports that I'd done that had sort of were enabled me to play at, the, at an elite level. And often there are so many elite sports people. I think Andy Murray was a great footballer. You know, they have lots of different other sports that they also love and it builds up that kind of stamina and sort of, you know, diverse skill set as well. So it sounds like there were lots of innovative practitioners in, in your way who were there helping you and supporting you. They were thinking outside the box. There were no barriers. They were, you know, very much ahead of their time. I love the fact you say that. I'm in my office and there's a poster. I don't know if you can see it think outside the box anyway on my wall <laughs> but yeah it was I think the message that I would give to families it, and parents and of, of young children is you don't have to specialize in a sport early on that would be the message I think it was about doing lots of different sports and learning those fundamental skills I, I always so one thing that I did from a very young age was dance I did tap ballet mod and I've got tap grade five. It's always a bit of a joke when people find out that I've got tap grade five and I can do a time step. But if you think about the, the sort of underlying fundamental skills of dance and that, how that translates into footwork skills, be in football or rugby, and that discipline, I think that I can still remember my dance teacher, my goodness, she was a fierce woman. But it taught me discipline and being surrounded by people of different ages as well. You know, in dance, you know, you might be on a stage with people younger than you, people older than you. And then I found athletics. I did a lot of team sports like netball, you know, the traditional sports, netball, basketball. But yeah, I, I, my granddad was very disappointed I didn't do football. My feet aren't that good with a ball, unfortunately. He was very sort of working class, no idea what a rugby ball was, no idea. But yeah, athletics, again, very similar to dance. It's those fundamental movement skills. And again, I had a coach that was just fierce and got me in the gym early on. So I started lifting from sort of quite an early age, really, from about 13, 14. I don't mean lifting heavy weights, but understanding how to like to do a press up and a squat and a, and a put, like, body weight movements, which I think are just, so obviously I'm a PE teacher and I think they're so key, like understanding your body, understanding how to look after your body. And people always say, how are you still going nearly 40? I think it's a lot of it's just understanding, listening to your body. It sounds like you had exceptional teachers. I mean, it really does. Who also took a great interest. When do you think there was a moment where you realized you had a lot of talent that they had realized and were happy to nurture and wanted to nurture? I think I probably didn't realize it myself until I was in the sixth form and I was sort of 16, 17. And I was being you know, encouraged to go, right, you need to go and play rugby outside of school. You've got to go and find a team. I think that's when I started to realise. But looking back now, you know, in hindsight, when you reflect as an adult, I think really from quite a young age and sort of even when you're in year seven, my, no, realising my PE teachers obviously saw something in me. And I had, re I've still got asthma and I, ha I my asthma was quite wow. bad. I wasn't very fit. I was quite chunky. I was a little bit overweight. And I remember doing things like cross country and being the last one in. I can still remember sort of sat outside, the, like almost having an asthma attack. But that was because of my fitness. It wasn't necessarily because of my asthma. I, mean, I always talk to children about that when they say, oh, but I've got asthma, miss. You know, I say, well, I've got asthma as well. And it's about how you manage it. Yeah. And I can still remember when I started at the rugby club, we had to do fitness in the summer and being at the back of the group, you know, and I was pretty much walking the fitness sessions. We'd come back into the rugby club and, you know, everyone had been there half an hour waiting for me to finish. But again, I had people around me that taught me how to 
right, you've got the fundamental skills. Now we need to work on your fitness. So it was really, it was down to those people that could then support me to understand my body. One of the questions parents often ask and worry about is if you have a child who's who's slighter than other children, this issue about weight distribution in rugby, you know, I've got a very slight 13-year-old, I don't want him facing, I've seen some 13-year-olds who look like grown men on that rugby pitch. Can you, it sounded like, you know, how much is body, you know, shape, how much does it matter and can you rule people out from participation at an early age based on that and should you? No, simple answer, no. You shouldn't rule people out. And I think that's one of the benefits of rugby, that there's there's a position for everybody. And whatever level you're at, there's a place for everyone in sport. I think for families, they, you know, and especially if you're a mum, you know, worrying about, like the example you gave, I think it's really important that they're in a club or at a school where the teacher or the coach is teaching them the correct technique because you can be the smallest player on the pitch. You just need to look at the elite game. You can be the smallest player on the pitch and you can still tackle someone three times your size and height as long as you're doing it safely and you won't get injured. And so really it comes down to sort of that coaching. It goes back to those basics. You know, whenever I'm coaching the kids here at school at Saracens, I, I'll always say to them when they're, we're doing real basic warm-up drills, whether it's passing or tackling, and I'll say to them, they'll sort of go, oh, we're doing this again. I say, look, even at Saracens, we do this as a warm-up. Because when you're absolutely knackered, you know, you're on a pitch and you're blowing, it comes back to that technique. And I'm not very big. People laugh when they say, you're a second row. I mean, I yeah, I know I'm not stood up now, but yeah, I'm not the biggest player on the pitch. I'm probably the smallest forward in the premiership, actually. But it, it really does come down to technique and that, that's what keeps people safe. Something else parents are very interested in asking you, and I'm sure you've come across this, is when children just want to give up because they've lost a match and they're down in the dumps and they don't think they're going to be the best because they're not as good as other people. How do you approach that? How do you nurture a growth mindset in a young sports Mm -hmm. person? You know that as a teacher and as a player. And also I want to know if you ever had those moments that maybe your granddad or granny had to go, come on, Sonia. Oh my goodness. I mean, that's why I do sport. That's why I'm a PE teacher, I think. Everything you just said there, that's why sport is so important for young people. You've got to lose. It's what teaches you about life. You know, resilience. Well, one of the values of Saracens is hard work. It's discipline. And when you're losing or when you're injured or when you're failing, that's when you need those values the most. Um, I mean, I don't know whether I should say this. I'm actually injured at the moment. I actually, I've got a broken ankle. I didn't do it playing rugby. Uh, So just to clarify that, but my goodness me, like when you're injured, that is when you, you know, you've got to reach, I don't know where the depths of wherever and find that discipline and that motivation and resilience to get yourself in the gym. I'm at work every day to get myself into work, even though I'm on one leg, you know, and I think I'm not saying you have to be an elite level international athlete to understand what the benefits of sports can give. And that's why schools, most schools now will, you know, encourage young people to take part in some kind of extracurricular activity. I'm not saying it has to be sport. It could be music. You know, it could be a drama club. It could be a maths club. But part of that is about them understanding that failure is what makes them better. And I always say, if it wasn't for Saracens, if it wasn't for my sport, I wouldn't be the leader I am today. I wouldn't be a leader in a school. 
I wouldn't, I was speaking that this weekend actually at the men's game and that's what I was saying, you know, if it wasn't for sport, I wouldn't be the leader. And part of that is learning to lose and learning to fail and come back from injuries. So important. It's a cliche, but your failures in sport, the matches you've lost, the competitors you've lost against, those are probably the richest learning moments for you. Oh my goodness. I have been dropped so many times. (laughs) I've been picked and dropped, picked and dropped. If you know much about my playing career, I was in the England setup for nearly 10 years and didn't play a 15s, didn't get a 15s cap. Um, I played sevens and captain sevens for England and had some most amazing experiences. I've been around the world and made some amazing friends through it. But people always say, how many 15s caps have you got? And, you know, for 10 years, literally 10 years, I was getting picked and dropped, picked and dropped. I went part time at work when I was England captain and got signed my contract at work at a school that I was teaching at. Literally got a call Monday morning, got dropped from being captain. Oh, yeah. So, and I, again, I always tell the kids that, you know, and, and every, so at the moment, obviously, I'm still playing at Saracens every Wednesday, not at the moment because obviously I'm injured, but I should be back in January. But last season, every Wednesday, we get a text message to say whether we're in the squad or not. And if you're not in the squad, you get a phone call. So if you get a missed call, it's <laughs> horrible. Like, oh, God. <laughs> got the call sometimes he might just be calling to just to say that this went well last week and you think oh thank goodness but yeah so literally every Wednesday I'm waiting to find out if I've been picked but I mean that's what again it's what makes me the player that I am and and then it also helps me in my in my career so if you get the phone call because this is a sort of granularity I think that parents and and teenagers are interested and when you get that phone call says listen Sonia sorry you know this week it's not going to be you in the team Mm -hmm. What is it that you say to yourself in that moment, in the moments after the phone call to perk yourself up and to be your own best friend and to carry on? What do I say? I don't know what I say. I mean, I just, I just see it as a challenge. Mm. I, yeah, I see it as a challenge. And I think, so I've played for, this is my 21st season. And I think it was for about, we worked out, I think about 18 years, 18 seasons. I'd only ever been on the bench if I'd had an injury. I'd always been picked. I was always starting. And um, about two seasons ago, I didn't just get put on the bench. I got dropped completely before a really big match against Exeter. But to give you an idea, this is what I did. I said, okay, fine. I want to be, I want to come with the squad and I want to be water girl. I, you know, give me a job. I'll be the water girl. I'll sit in the box and I'll, I'll analyze line outs and, and feedback to the, the squad at half time. I'll, you know, I'll support the forwards. And it was really, really tough. And then I, I actually read someone recommended that I, I follow Abby one I can't pronounce her name Wambrack. she's a very famous footballer in America she was always starting world cup player world cup winner and then she suddenly was getting put on the bench and so she she writes in her book and she talks a lot about leading from the bench so I suddenly went okay so I had someone I had a bit of a I had a few chats with people, a few people that mentor me some coaches as in off the pitch coach rather than you know sort of life coaches and I think that's something that's helped as well, you know, talking to other people and and they went, you're still Sonic. You're still like, you can still give to the team. You've got all of that expertise. Yeah. I love that transferability of your skill set somewhere else. You're still participating Mm -hmm. in a different way and you're still present and you're still part of the team. During the summer when the British Lionesses were doing their wonderful display of amazing football skills, I noticed that some of the girls who were on the bench and hadn't participated Mm -hmm. in the game, they were so celebratory you know they 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 obviously felt it was quite striking to my own children well, I mean they didn't play but they oh, were but still they, part of the team yeah. and I think they they were great role models for that kind of being on the bench but mm-hmm. still part of the journey 
And that's when, you know, when you're speaking to young people, you need to say that's why you've got to go training because you're as, as important, you're as integral to the team as the starting player. You know, training wouldn't work if you just had 15 players at training. You've got to have a squad. People get injured. Last year we had COVID. I had COVID. I missed one game, two games last year. One because I was playing for the Barbars, which was a bit better than the one I missed because I had COVID. You know, things things happen and you've you've got to develop younger players and you never know when that could be your chance. And if you've not gone training because you go, oh, well, I didn't get picked last week, so I'm not going to go training this week or, oh, it's raining. And, yeah, that's they're the sorts of things that motivate me. Why do I train on Christmas Day? Because I think, well, my opposite number might not be training today. You know, it's those I like it. I like it. <laughs> so, listen, I'm very, very interested in talking to you about injury, the mm-hmm. psychology of injury. And this is probably presumably something you studied at Loughborough. I'll, I've met a lot of parents in my time and their child is a great swimmer or a great, you know, athlete. And when they get injured, the psychological Mm-hmm. aspect of that is really challenging you know it's disappointing it's gutting you might have your you know especially in athletics or something you might have a season where you're allowed to shine and you're injured at the start of it it's just devastating tell us a little bit about what you know about the psychology yeah. of injury and how what advice you would give to those young athletes it's your identity right so it's who you are and I think the positive of that is that obviously that's what gives you that motivation to get outside when it's raining and train on Christmas Day. But my advice to families would be that you don't want it to be the be all and end all of their life. There needs to be more so that when injury happens or when they get dropped, they've got something else. And I think that's something that I've started to learn as I'm getting older and obviously I'm coming towards, I'll be retiring from playing soon. You know, how many more years have I got left in me? So I think that's quite key. And I learned that I, I had a big injury in 2008. That was I know it seems a long while ago now, but I often go back to it. I had a really big injury. I managed to get back in nine months, but I was told initially you won't walk properly again, let alone play sport again. But I was back on the pitch in nine months. But I think a lot of that learning, I did a lot of work with a sports psychologist. Thanks to being involved with England, they it wasn't just about the nutrition and the physio and the sports massage. And the key bit was having a, a sports psychologist work with me. So yeah, identity is really, really key because when you lose something like that, it's like you go through a grieving process and you, you really do. You, It's like you've lost someone. If you lose your sport because you're injured, you grieve. And I think families need to support their young people or because you've got to see it as they're grieving for someone. They've completely lost something. So that was something else I learned. And Sonia, quite a lot of families have asked me about sports psychologists, which books you'd recommend, you know, is there a particular sports psychologist that you follow or admire or read, you know, engage with? There's not one particular one I can think of. I mean, I'm lucky here that I've got Matt Stevens, who's the principal at Saracens. He's actually Dr. Stevens, and he used to be a sports psychologist with Watford Football Club. I'm probably, I'm not much help here because I'm so lucky that in all the teams I've worked in, I've just been given that. I've had access to it. And so that is one of the benefits of being involved in elite sport. I haven't almost had to do my own research because I'm given that and I'm very like appreciative of how, of how lucky I am. I think the other thing that anything to do with imagery. So that was, again, something that was really beneficial because coming back from an injury, almost you can to go back onto the, the track or the pitch or in the pool, people might be scared you're scared in case the injury happens again yeah. or that they won't get back to where they were. So a lot of the work that sport psychologists did with me was was around imagery, imagery and training on the pitch in that prep. And so I think anything around that would be really bent, like getting them to watch themselves back in videos. If you've got photos or video clips on their mobile phone when they were performing at their best, re-watch that and remind them of, of all the great things that they can do on a pitch. 
that was really key. So listen, we're living in a society where sadly a lot of, for example, I follow the research on on girls' participation in sport. Mm -hmm. And at the point of puberty, it's well known that girls in particular can drop off for various reasons. Onset of puberty, body dissatisfaction is on the rise, you know, in our society. What is it that you've learned and you work with young people? What are your observations around that particular issue and what you sort of do in school to sort of counter that sort of drop in participation if it does happen? Interestingly, one of the things I've noticed in the last few years being here at Saracens is competition. We've noticed a real drop off when there's a lack of competition for girls and there are more competitions in place just unnaturally in, in the boroughs around London for boys, whether it's you know football or basketball. And there are fewer events that girls can participate in so you can do all the training in the world but the drop-off that we've seen at at extracurricular clubs is when they then don't have a match at the weekend or they don't have a tournament coming up and that's when numbers have really started to drop so yeah I, I think that's quite an interesting one you'd be surprised it's about actually having that sort of goal and that competition that they can then look forward to having something to kind of aim for yes because um, it's interestingly in the research it's slightly contradictory because they talk about the fear of not doing well in front of mm-hmm. peers can also be uh, an interesting one you know you know just not doing as well making mistakes yeah. on the pitch the fear of failure in that yeah. environment so removing the element of competition for some children yeah. can be beneficial and motivating there's been a lot of talk in schools over the, I mean, I've been teaching 15 years about this idea of competition that we should remove fear of failure for boys as well. And, and the, there aren't any benefits from losing and we should have competitions like inter-house and inter-school competition where there's no winner. But I think, we, we, well, from working in a school and working, that is going the other way, definitely. And we do have inter-house competitions and we celebrate success and failure, but and not just in sport. We have house competitions in everything, whether it's, you know, music, drama, history. And I also think it's about the media and how women are represented. And things have definitely changed in the last, well, five years. But since I've been teaching 14, 15 years, but really in the last five years about what young girls see as being cool and see as being like, you know, what they want to do. And when I was younger, when I first started teaching, it wasn't okay for girls to be muscly or to have a six pack or to say they do sport. Whereas now it's becoming more acceptable to say that for young girls, to say that. And even just here at Saracens, you know, if we say, oh, we've got some free tickets for the match this weekend, and they'll say, oh, Miss, are you playing? I say, oh, no, no, it's for the men's game. They're like, oh, we're not coming then. And they actually want to come and see the women play. And because they've got a link with myself and some of the other teachers here, because they know us and they can see us. So it's about young girls being able to see people that look like them, that they can relate to. And I think so the media has a huge role to play. Look what happened in the summer with the football. We're about to have the Women's World Cup you know, we're going to do a big promotion here. So I think that's that's key as well, isn't it? So tell us about the Rugby World Cup, those of us who don't know too much about that world and how we can get our own children excited about it and supporting it. Yeah, so uh, it starts next weekend. I mean, if you just think if I'm being very selfish and talking about Saracens, we've got 21 players. So I think we've got eight playing for England, we've got three for Wales, Fijian, Americans, Canadians, so, yeah, we've, we've got a very successful team. But I think it's just important to talk about when there are Euros or World Cups or World Championships in whatever sport it is, it's important to have it on in the background. The matches are really early because it's out in New Zealand. But, you know, when you're having your breakfast in the morning, stick it on ITV. You know, the commentators, some amazing, amazing ex-internationals that are commentating. So they get to see women commentating on elite level sport. And there's men commentators as well. But, 
you know, getting to see it on mainstream TV, I think just have it on in the background and talk about it. I think that's really, really important. They don't have to want to be a rugby player. They just need to see women being successful, women that look like them being successful. And being interested in it, you know, oh, yeah. the Rugby World Cup's on, I want to hear how the women are doing, you know, just literally modelling that is quite important, isn't it? Yeah. So you've mentioned you work at Saras, and I think people can't contemplate what it is to have an amazing school linked <laughs> to, to, to a rugby, to a sports club. So tell us how that works. What does it look like? What is your school like? Well, I always say I'm literally the luckiest teacher in the world. I don't, there isn't any other teacher that could say they've played at a club for 21 years and that same club has a school. We're just a normal state school. We're not, you know, like a Chelsea or Tottenham Arsenal. They have um, academies for players on the fringes of making it. We're not one of those. We're just a normal state school serving the local community here in Barnet. The area was in desperate need of more secondary schools. So when the free school initiative came about, some amazing people at Saracens went, We've got a great rugby team and we've got a great netball team. We do loads of charity work with the foundation. Why don't we start a school? <laughs> so, yeah, we're based on the Graham Park Estate in Collendale where we serve the lo- local community. We, we're not a private school. I think that's really important to, to a lot of people assume, oh, it's rugby. It's a middle class sport. It's Saracen, so it must be a private school. We're really not. Most of our kids walk to school from the estate. We're based right on the estate. Just to put it in a bit of context, the national average for free school meals is about 14, 15%, and we're just short of 50%. So I think about 45, 47% at the moment of our community have free school meals. We've got 65% of our families are, speak English as an additional language. So we're a really diverse community. And obviously, I'm, when I say I'm the luckiest, I mean, I'm so proud. It probably has come out. I've mentioned Saracens a lot. Yeah, I went out, I was at the at the men's game, as I said, at the weekend. And first thing people say, oh, you know, you got 300 games last year. You won the premiership last year. Yeah, and I'm the vice principal at the high school. That's, I always, that's, you know, I want to talk about yeah. school. Yeah, I mean, the, we're just a normal state school. We're funded by the DfE, but we get a lot of benefits from being linked to Saracens. We're very, very lucky. Now, I'm lucky because I've been to your school. And I remember seeing, if I re- remember correctly, all the, the players' rugby boots are in like a cabinet. Yes. There's loads of paraphernalia signed. <laughs> and if you're into rugby, it's incredibly exciting to see that sort of, you know, real life stuff, you know, muddy boots yeah. in a glass cabinet. Yeah, I mean, if you're into rugby, that bit's pretty cool. But And I must note that they are the men's boots and we haven't got yet got the premiership winning boots from the women. But anyway... So everyone, a lot of people comment on that but so we have a futures event like a careers day and we had over 52 different employers come to our careers day and everyone had a link with Saracen somehow whether they're sponsors whether they're fans that know about the high school so our young people are getting exposed to 52 different career paths because of the link with Saracens and we've got our sixth form opening in September and we're going to have a pre-apprenticeship pathway and already we've got so many sponsors that work with the rugby and the netball club that have said we want to come in and work with your young people so that's one example but I think one of my best stories a couple of years ago we had one of our matches and we'd given loads of free tickets out to families we had so many families come to one of our games and one of our governors she's a big rugby fan and she happened to be at the game and saw we always say to the kids wear your saracen's top wear your peak it with pride and she went up to this family this well first of all to know he was a boy at a women's game so that's first tick you know and um she said oh you know you're here to watch the women today and he was like well i'm here to watch miss green today and she was like oh it's me he went i'm part of her guard of honor because he, he was waving the flags he ran ah. out 
and my, the governor sort of tells this story and she said she had a tear in her eye because she's you know there's this young boy at a women's match proud to be at a women's match proud to wear his kit and then she turned and mum was stood next to him and she was a muslim woman wearing a headscarf which is just so unheard of at a rugby match you know very often if you know much about rugby it's very middle class very white and i just that story like just filled me with a lot of pride i think i hope that we're just doing a very small step to changing the face of, of rugby Absolutely. Now, I'm dying to know, and I know people who knew that I was interviewing you were dying to know, if you had to pull out the moments, the greatest moments of your career, pick three of them, where maybe you go back to them and you, you know, you revisit them in your mind because they were just glorious. Tell us, you know, the pinnacle of what it felt like in those moments. Okay, so most recently, playing for the Barbarians against South Africa at Twickenham. I don't know if anyone knows much about that match, but it was a double header. The men were playing first and we were playing afterwards. And sadly, the men's team got COVID in the, the week running up to it and they pulled the game in the morning, which was devastating for Samoa, who were already at the stadium. But on a plus side for us, we, I mean, we had to get rushed to the stadium. We got bumped to the main slot. And so we were on a Saturday primetime TV on BBC and our game was on TV. We had just short of, I don't know, 30,000 people watching us at Twickenham. And there, there were some people that turned up to the stadium and realised the women were playing, not the men, and they went home. But for all the 30,000 that did turn up and decide to stay, and by the end of the match, the stadium was still packed. Wow. I thank all of those people. So, yeah, being part of a, a record-breaking game at Twickenham, and I never thought I'd get to be in that environment again because I last played for England in 2013. So that was quite a cool one. I think reaching my 300th game for Saracens, the club are amazing. They've looked after me through injuries, through my teaching career. And yeah, it was a very proud moment. And I hope that there'll be more women to follow me that can say they've played X number of games for one club. So that was a very special day. And then I think on any game that I've played against Harlequins, those of you that know Sarri's Harlequins have got a good rivalry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think big one was just before COVID, we were down by about 25 points at half time. We came back to win it 30 points to, I don't know, we, yeah, we, absolutely smashed them and it was away it was at at the stoop so that was a that was a special one amazing so my last question is about anyone listening who has a very talented uh rugby player at home what is your advice in terms of parents always ask me the balancing schoolwork mm-hmm. with training this particular child is coming up to the GCSEs in June how do you approach that without sort of making sure their fitness doesn't go to pot, you know, at the same time of sustaining their study habits. I'm going to be probably quite controversial here because I know there'll be some parents listening that just say no to sport, no to extracurricular during the run up to the exam, especially in year 11. I've got some families here that have said that and I'm going to be controversial and say don't do that. They need to have a balance during their that really intense time. It's a very intense period. You know, how many exams was it? I don't know, 20 or so exams in the space of a few weeks and the build up to that. And it's about that sort of building that resilience. It's almost just like training, isn't it? You've got to build it up slowly. And if you're doing it, if you start early, you know, in year nine, year 10 and get them into that good routine, they will have time to be able to go training once a week. Okay, it will be, you'll have to cut it down, but they will be able to go to their club or, you know, whatever it is on a Tuesday or Thursday or play a match at the weekend. They will be still be able to go for a run or whatever fitness they do. And I think it's so important because otherwise they're going to get burnout, just like you would get burnout if you train too much. They're going to get burnout and switch off if they revise too much. And if you're forcing them, you know, use it as a reward, as a way for them to switch off 
um, to clear their mind. So yeah, it might be some controversial. I know it's really hard getting that balance, but I think sport is a really good way to switch off. Sorry, I said I had a last question. I've got two last questions from students. One is about nutrition. So this boy Mm. is year 11 rugby A team and wanted to know if you had any tips on nutrition ahead of a match and how soon you should eat your breakfast ahead of a noon game, I think it was. Okay, I really struggle to eat on match days. Um, Mm. So yeah, sort of a one o'clock, two o'clock kickoff, I really struggle. So you've got to get up early and get your food in early. It really matters what you start eating the day before or even like three, two days before. Maybe he needs to do a bit of research on sports nutrition. There's so much out there. But yeah, carbo loading the night before. Water is key. Like your hydration is key to your performance. And it's not what you drink on that morning. It's the day before, two days before. So hydration, researching about what foods work well for you. And then if you have to get up early to get getting the right nutrients on that on the day of a match, then, then so be it. Even if you then go back to sleep for a bit. And Sonia, parent question, how often do they need a new pair of rugby boots? Oh, good you question. Know, well, <laughs> they cost yeah, I mean, a fortune. They, they cost a fortune, don't they? And especially if they're growing. I mean, at least I don't have that anymore. At least I'm not growing out of them. Yeah, I mean, I get a couple of boots a season. But you don't need to get them. Oh, don't, the kids won't want me to say this. You don't need yeah. to get the £250 ones. But if they want a brand, which I know is always a thing, you can still get some really decent ones. The most important thing with boots is having the right type of boot for the right pitch so you know when it's raining whether they've got studs whether they've got moldies that's really the key thing but you can get cheap ones that have still got a brand on okay wonderful good i'm glad to hear that i'll replay that back the last thing is somebody wanted to know if you'd ever written a book about your own experiences that could be there's a lot of fascinating autobiographies around that i think are very inspiring so post the women's football i've just been reading lots of interesting history books about the history of women's football and a lot of those autobiographies i think there's a real appetite for them well no but maybe you've given me an idea another project (laughs) just to fill fill in the time (laughs) Okay, well, when you do write it, we're going to look forward to reading it. So listen, I know you're called Sonic. Everybody calls call you Sonic. Sonic. So I'm going to call you Sonic if that's Please okay. Please do, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. And, you know, huge congratulations on an amazing career and everything that you have to achieve in the future as well. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me, Kathy. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.